this bonus episode of Illegal Tender Season 5, we hear from Natalie John-Baptiste, who is a lawyer who helps student loan borrowers go through the bankruptcy process. She shares some unique insights having gone through the process herself. So, yeah, when I... I always wanted to be an attorney, and, you know, when it was time for me to go to undergrad, I just... You know, my parents didn't have the money to pay for it, but it was sort of just automatic that I would take out student loan money in order to be able to pay the tuition. And I didn't really give it much thought. It was just what you did. And, you know, I was always told that that student loan debt is good debt and you're going to, this is what you need to do in order to get your degree, but you'll be able to pay it off, you know, with no problem once you have your degree. So then borrowed money for undergrad, and then in law school, the same thing, not even uh, much thought into it, just sign and and sign up for the loans, you know, optimistic and just knowing, like a knowing, not like a pie-in-the-sky dream, but just more like, I'm going to be an attorney, so there's no reason I shouldn't be able to pay this off. So when I graduated law school, I had, you know, I want to say about $170,000 of student loan debt combined between my four years of undergrad and my three years of law school. So, and then at that point, you know, I I pursued my dream of being an entertainment attorney, and I did that for several years. And while I was, you know, fulfilled in the fact that I was working for some of the biggest record companies in the world, I still was struggling to pay my dues in, in in the sense of making the money that I needed in order to be able to put a meaningful dent in my student loans. I, I was making substantial payments for a number of years, you know, between my private and my federal loans, a combination of about $900 a month, which is, you know, what some people pay for a mortgage in parts of the country. So... You know, after many years of struggling, you know, almost almost a decade, it was nine years after I graduated law school, I filed bankruptcy, initially not even expecting to get rid of the student loans. But, you know, then I learned about the undue hardship rule and said, wow, this is something that, you know, I should pursue. And, you know, I naively endeavored to to get rid of student loans when bankruptcy experts were telling me, oh, no, it's impossible. You can't get rid of student loans. You know, you have to be on your deathbed to get rid of student loans, which is such a myth. And, you know, so anyway, after my success in my own case, I decided, like, this is what I want to do. And I, I really want to uh, help other people with, with this burden and, and be a a relief, you know, provide them with the relief they need. So one more question. So when someone manages to declare bankruptcy, gets their loans forgiven, it's not just, you know, it ends there. Their credit gets affected. It Mm -hmm. goes in their record. So can you tell me a little bit about the repercussions of declaring bankruptcy? Okay. Well, yes, the bankruptcy does go on your credit report. And if you file Chapter 7, it will remain there for 10 years. But I always, you know, tell people that most times when people are struggling with debt, their credit is not great anyway. So they wouldn't be able to do those things that they think that the bankruptcy would hold them back from doing, right? So like purchasing a home or getting a great interest rate 
on a car loan because their debt-to-income ratio is usually completely out of whack and that the bankruptcy filing will actually benefit them. So it's going to wipe out all their debt and actually make them more creditworthy because now um, the the creditor, whoever the lender is, knows that they can't file bankruptcy again for another eight years. So, and in my case and with many of my clients, as soon as they receive their discharge, they're actually flooded with credit card offers. So the myth, the, the myth that bankruptcy is the end of the world is just completely, I mean, I think it's so misguided and I, the stigma around bankruptcy, it really doesn't make any sense because it you just think of it as like a life, you know, the, the little raft you need to like pull you out of the water because there's no sense in drowning if you know that there's a tool that can help you and just, you know, wipe the slate clean. So although the bankruptcy, you know, stays on your record and certain things like when people want to work in the financial services industry, the bankruptcy would be maybe detrimental for them, you know. But in generally speaking, it it helps you more than it hurts you. So and, and people you know, are so, they have this emotional attachment to their credit score, right? So they'll say, well, you know, I pay $1,000 a month to maintain my credit cards, right? So just making the minimum payments, they have like $50,000 of credit card debt. I mean, and I see this on a regular basis. And they're like, well, I pay everything on time. I'm just making the minimum payments. But I'm, I'm feeling like I'm drowning and and But my credit score is so good. And I'm like, well, I mean, do you want a nice credit score or do you want to get rid of $50,000? So it, it is a personal decision. No one can tell you, oh, you should file for bankruptcy. But it's definitely a tool that more people could utilize and they don't because of what their, you know, what their perception of bankruptcy is. Can you tell me about the case that has affected you the most? And, you know, at the end of it, you were like, oh, my God, thank God this happened. Wow. I mean, the one that affected me the most actually was was a sad ending. Like, it, it didn't end the way that I anticipated. It's an older gentleman. He's about 67 years old. He's retired. He had gone to law school but never passed the bar but didn't pursue it much more. He went into a different path. He was doing a lot of, you know, public service type of work, like really helping the community. And, you know, him and his wife, you know, she had she she he had already reached retirement age and he was only collecting Social Security. And his wife had her Social Security and her pension. But, you know, combined you know, the court looked at it as, well, you have sufficient income and this doesn't rise to the level of hardship. But his student loan debt was so massive that, you know, he really wanted to get some relief from it. And, you know, we appealed the decision. There was some, you know, issues there that we thought would get relief on appeal, but it didn't. It, it We still you know, we're not successful. So that had a big impact on me, you know, as realizing, wow, like, n- sometimes you can, no matter 
how sad the situation is if it doesn't rise to a certain level of, you know, when the person has a spouse with, you know, with substantial income or even, you know, a parent who's potentially going to leave them an inheritance, it's problematic for the debtor, even though they don't want to be a burden on their spouse or a burden on their parents, it it just doesn't always turn out the way you would want it, you know? So, yeah, that's to, to answer your question there. <laughs> no, but what strikes me from some of your cases, like the Anderson case and this one, is that a lot of these people are near retirement or they're pretty old, you know? Right. And, I mean, I don't... Sorry if that's offensive, but right. these are not young people who want to get their debts discharged immediately after graduating. So right. that uh, that that term that the people use, deadbeats, right? That doesn't apply, right? That doesn't apply. It's it's because I mean these people have been struggling under student loan debt for decades, literally, and some of them have paid thousands and thousands of dollars on their student loans, but still haven't you know made much progress. And they're not deadbeats. They're people who've, you know, tried their best and they've come to a point where they feel like they don't have another option. Like this is this is their only solution. So, I mean, I although a lot of my clients are older and it, it would seem that, you know, with an older client or somebody who's near retirement, it would be so clear-cut. But the way the undue hardship standard is currently, and I'm hoping that it's going to trend in a direction that's more of a relief for the debtors, but it's such a high burden to meet. You really have to show that, you know, uh, you. so how— the, the undue hardship standard, I want to, you know, really clarify what it means to show undue hardship. So the the first part is, can you afford to maintain a minimal standard of living for yourself and repay your student loan debt? So what that means is, you know, do you have enough income to cover your basic needs? You know, can you afford to pay rent and utilities, put food on the table, gas in your car, life insurance, you know, any out-of-pocket medical costs, clothing, you know, just the basic necessities. So, you know, when when the court looks at the monthly budget, they have to evaluate whether or not you have sufficient, you know, income left over to make a, a payment on your student loan. And if the answer is no, then you've met the first part of the test. The second part is, is, is the are the current circumstances likely to persist for a significant portion of the repayment period. So whatever situation you're in, it can't be just a temporary setback, like you're, oh, I've been unemployed for a few months. No, it has to be something that has, you know, you can demonstrate is not going to turn around anytime soon. So when you're dealing with an older client, that's um, pretty clear and you can show that, look, this person is is retired or they're going to retire very soon. So now they're only looking at their pension or their Social Security. So this is, you know, likely to persist for a long time. And the third is good faith. You know, did the person make a good faith attempt to repay their loan? And this doesn't mean that the person made actually made any payments. Good faith means that 
they intended to pay it back when they borrowed it, that they've tried to increase their income and minimize their expenses, that they stayed in communication with the lender, you know, to request forbearances or or deferments. So even if the person never made a payment, and I have clients who've never made a payment on their student loans, but they they stayed in communication, they requested, you know, lower payments. So they demonstrated good faith by applying to dozens of jobs, hundreds of jobs without any success. So that is a demonstration of good faith, like trying to increase their income and minimizing their expenses. So who would you say is responsible for the student debt crisis that we're facing today? Oh, boy. I mean, it's hard to point the finger at one culprit, but I think it's just the perfect storm of Play, like everyone plays a part, right? So the the government is lending money, you know, to and the way the program is set up is for people they don't care about your credit worthiness. They're they want to quote unquote, you know, encourage higher education. And then the schools take advantage of that by continuing to increase the tuition. I mean, tuition has increased like, you know, I, I, I forget what the statistic is, but I want to say a thousand percent since the 1970s. I'm pretty sure that's accurate, but don't quote me on that. But, you know, to, the, the, the colleges continue to take advantage of the student loan programs by, you know, because they know that if they increase the tuition, people are going to borrow money to pay for it. So and then parents and, and students themselves you know, with these big dreams, and there's nothing wrong with dreaming big. And, you know, had I known better when I was 18, maybe I would have made a more practical choice. But, you know, people think, oh, I've got to go to the best school. And the parents want their kids to go to the best school without really um, thinking about the financial consequences. So it's not just the students borrowing money. A lot of parents take on a lot of debt for their children to go to school And I deal with a lot of people with, you know, who've co-signed private student loans or took out Parent PLUS loans from the federal government. So you have this perfect storm of craziness. So it's gotten out of hand because I don't know if you're aware, but the student loan program started back in the 60s when, you know, they the Russians, you know, launched the space rocket and Americans were like, oh, no, they're they're smarter than us. So we need to pump you know, money out for education. And, you know, it started there and it, with good intention because we, we want to have the smartest, cap- most capable people and we don't want um, money to be a barrier, you know, for people getting their education. So, but, you know, you fast forward all these years later and it's turned into, you know, this mess of, you know, people with so much debt that they, you know, especially with federal student loans, there's no statute of limitations, which means that they can collect on you literally for the rest of your life, as opposed to a private debt where it has, you know, depending on what state you live in, a limited number of years that the creditor can collect from you. Is the solution just to tell people stop taking student loans? But then then you cut off accessibility to higher education, right? right? So what would be a fix? I mean, 
lately, you know, when I advise people about pursuing higher education, I'm like, go to the school that you can afford. You know, go where uh, the, the tuition is cheaper or you get a scholarship or a grant, um, not you know, some fancy name where you know you're going to either have to borrow money. Yeah, if, if you if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't go. And I feel like the if people stop giving in to this notion of, oh, I need to go to this school and pay this much for my degree, the the market will, you know, eventually just, you know, calm down as far as the cost of education. And I think, you know, a lot of the politicians now are, you know, um, pushing for public or tuition-free college so that people have the opportunities to pursue their degrees without going into debt. So I would advise people to just go where you can afford. Don't go into debt or, you know, if you have a solid plan. And it's it's hard. You don't—nobody has a crystal ball. You don't know what the future holds. But just making smarter decisions about um, your financial future. And, you know, I think financial literacy— in high school is really important. People need to understand what they're signing up for when they take out a loan, any loan, you know, an auto loan, a mortgage, a student loan. No one really comes out of high school with that knowledge, at least back where when I went to school. And now it's starting to become more of a topic that's discussed. But back then it was... You know, you just you go and you, they put some papers in front of you in the, the financial aid office. You sign it without really, you know, at least in my case and in a lot of my clients' cases, you're not you don't really understand the weight of what you're, you know, about to do when you sign those papers. So there is a, a case that's in New York and it's a big case. I mean, you're not handling the case, but everyone in this space is looking at that case. The Rosenberg case. Why is this case so important to the community? I think it's going to set a new standard for what it means to discharge a student loan, just to give more relief to, you know, to more student loan borrowers. Because the the Brunner test is this archaic, it's a 1987 case, the Brunner, the current undue hardship standard. So now the Rosenberg case, and, and hopefully that decision holds up, that you don't have to jump through all these hoops to get rid of a student loan. It's it's just simple math. Does the person have sufficient income? You, If you look at their income schedule in their bankruptcy papers and their expense schedule, is there enough income there to be able to manage the student loan. In the Rosenberg case, Judge Morris discharged $220,000 of student loans for a for a law school graduate. And, you know, he's, I, I believe he's in his 50s. But, you know, in that decision, she really just, you know, squashes this myth that student loans are impossible to get rid of and that it's this, you know, impossible feat. It's very straightforward. You know, this is a mess and we need to do something to give relief to student loan debtors. It's just, it's gotten to a point where it's just ridiculous. And we can't use 1987 case law 
in 2020. It just doesn't make any sense because the world looks so different. Tuition is not the same. The job market is not the same. It's just it's time for a change. And I'm really optimistic about what this decision will mean for student loan borrowers. And do you think Judge Morris is tapping on some sort of overall sentiment that's floating around with other judges? Yes, mm. I I, th- I think so. I would like to think so. I mean, at least, you know, in New York, I see that judges are are becoming a little bit more relaxed with respect to, I mean, very recently, like in this year, you know, uh, more relaxed when it comes to student loans. And Judge Morris has also introduced a student loan like mediation program so that if if a, a debtor has a student loan issue, they don't necessarily have to litigate and bring the adversary proceeding. It, this it allows all the parties to come to the table and work out a payment plan that makes sense for everyone. Yeah, I'll ask you about the mediation later. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of that, but this is my last question. It's about, you know, your motivation. What made you become a lawyer in the first place, going back to where we started? And if you could, if you get another chance, a reset, mm. would you do it all over again? Well, like I said, you know, growing up, it was sort of like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer, but not really understanding what it means. And by the time I, you know, was in law school, I developed this passion for uh, the arts and being in media and entertainment. So I got like this fire in me, like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to work with rock stars. I'm going to work in the music industry. Like that was my dream, you know, and it just didn't work out for me. Like financially, it just wasn't making sense. You know, I was trying to pay my dues and climb up the ranks and become this like hotshot entertainment attorney. And it didn't work out quite that way. But, you know, when I went through my own struggle and I found this new passion, this new calling for helping people just live a better life, you know, just relieve them of their problems. I just want to, you know, make the world a better place. I felt like this was, you know, this is why I went to law school, really to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And I and I guess if I had to do it all over again, I don't necessarily know that I would have gone to law school, but I know that I want to heal people and help people just live happy, healthy lives, like financially healthy and just, you know, just a holistic, because a lot of times when people are struggling with their finances, there's other areas in their life that are that they're struggling with as well. And I see myself as a counselor, somebody who people can come to for help. So maybe I don't know what else I would have been doing, but maybe not necessarily law, but definitely in an arena where I get to touch people's lives and make their lives better. Legal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Arthi Swaminathan. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.